Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Hey, everybody. Welcome back for another episode. In today's episode, we sit down and we dive into the dirt behind building strong canine athletes. I'm joined with Erica Bowling of Northeast Canine Conditioning. She has a PhD. She's a certified fitness trainer, a certified canine massage provider, and a FitPaws master trainer. And we talk all about canine fitness plans, how to build stronger, faster, and more fit dogs, leading us to a better and more competitive season this fall and winter. Before we dive into that, I do have a few people that I want to just say thank you to. So first, I want to say thank you to Foul Friends, who left a review for us on Apple, a five-star review that says, it's such a great podcast of positive training and sports. Thanks. Thank you so much. I appreciate those kind words. We also had a review from Sierra01968. I've enjoyed hearing from all the guests and just listening and learning so much about this amazing world of dog-powered sports. It is pretty amazing. I've been running dogs for a little over three years now, and we started from knowing absolutely nothing to where we are now. It's podcasts and people like this that we really helping grow the sport. Thank you so much for everything you guys are doing. Thank you so much for saying that. I am so happy. I absolutely, absolutely love getting people more information in the sport. Sometimes it's not always easy to access, but one of my goals with this podcast is to help make this knowledge more accessible no matter where you live because not everybody has a sled dog club right around the corner from them. So I'm glad that you're enjoying the podcast. We have another five-star review from Bex2388. I have so enjoyed this podcast. The relevant and helpful content has really inspired me to dabble in dog-powered sports with my dogs. Yay! It's so interesting to learn about all the different facets of these sports and the dogs and humans that enjoy them. Thank you so much, Bex, for that review. I absolutely agree. There are so many different ways, no matter where you are in your fitness journey, no matter what you might be struggling with personally or how big or little your dog is, there's always a way that you can get engaged. And I, too, have been really inspired by a lot of the guests that have joined me on my podcast. So thank you for those kind words. As a reminder to everybody listening, we are still running our merchandise giveaway. So it will end next episode, which is October 20th. So if you've been enjoying the podcast and want to leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform to help us reach more like-minded folks, I'd appreciate it. And your name will be entered into that raffle, which we will be drawing at the start of our next podcast. So if you haven't left that review, please feel free to head over and do that. I appreciate it. All right, now let's dive into the episode. Hello, everybody. Today, we have another special episode lined up for you guys with a great guest, Erica Bowling with Northeast Canine Conditioning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get started and kind of dive into our topic, which I think a lot of people will really enjoy, we're going to be talking about building strength and stamina and endurance and speed in our mushing partners. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in dogs to start? Sure. Um, I like the, like most most people, we had grew, grew up with dogs all our life. And um, basically, oh gosh, it was probably about 15, 15 years ago, uh, I had a Doberman and I was like, you know, I, I want to do something more than just something more meaningful than just, you know, hanging out with your dog or competing for ribbons and stuff. I just kind of wanted to do more with my dog and uh, I had her evaluated for uh, search and rescue. And she was not bred for to be a working dog. She was bred to be a confirmation, you know, look pretty show dog. <laughs> and they said, it looks like she has some potential. And I was like, really? <laughs> and, um, and so I hooked up with some search and rescue teams. And that's where my passion for working dogs just really took off. And um, I worked with her a few years. But sure enough, when the trails got more difficult, uh, she did not have the drive to, <laughs> to work through it. And then I started looking for a dog that was truly bred for work with a bloodline for working and got involved in uh, the Belgian Malinois. 
And uh, my Bal my first Malinois, I was supposed to be doing um, search and rescue with him, but came from uh, just old school, old Belgian bloodlines, protection sport, uh, ring sport. And uh, I ended up learning more and just went to my very first trial. Uh, it's a sport called French ring. It's not a very popular sport in the United States, but it's a protection sport where the uh, decoy wears a full suit and the dog can bite anywhere in the suit. So a friend was competing in Chicago and I, I went out and it was my first time observing the sport and I just fell in love. And uh, my heart, I was like, oh my gosh, I'd never seen such amazing control on dogs that had such a huge drive, crazy drive. And I was like, how do they do that? I wanna learn this and uh, got involved in the ring sport and then more involved in the working dog world and started um, also getting involved in detection work, narcotics detection, and it just kind of grew from there. Um, so I started with the pet dogs, moved into the working dog world through search and rescue. And then it just kind of expanded there with the protection sports and detection. So um, quite of an array, <laughs> but um, it was interesting. I can't, I was thinking about this um, when you invited me to come on and I was like, when did I first learn about the dog powered sports? And I can't, I don't really remember, but I do know that I watched a movie that Cal Casey put together on dog, uh, dog powered sports. And I watched that and I like cried through the almost like the whole video. It was just so emotional. And I remember that I would watch some videos of some of the world championships of some of the dog powered sports. And they just with the dogs and the music, I'm like getting goosebumps just thinking about it. And I would just be bawling. And I was like, oh, my God, it was so emotional. And um, and I was a, I'm a runner. And I've done um, I mostly running by myself, you know, marathon training and stuff like that. And when I started running with my dog in Candy Cross, it was just a completely different feeling than when your dog runs next to you. And people don't understand that. They're like, well, what do you mean Candy Cross? I had people laughing, ha, ha, ha. What do you mean Candy Cross? You mean you're just running with your dog? And I was like, no, no, it's very different. <laughs> and, um, and that, the combination, um, my, my passion for being outdoors and exercise myself, I, I've always been involved in sports and exercise. I'm a certified personal trainer. Um, but that's how I kind of fell into the dog powered sports was through the Canny Cross and just that, that amazing bond. There's just something with your dog running in front of you and you're talking to them and their ears are twitching. You can see them paying attention to you. And then at the end, like my one dog, he's more snuggly. Like you can just see, he's just more connected to me at the end of a run. Um, and so, um, it's been a, a number of years since I've gotten involved in Canny Cross, but I can't remember. I know that video was one of my first like real emotional exposures to it. Um, I, I've seen a few of those videos that you're talking about kind of the, a short story, so to speak, following the dogs, following the connection. And it really is for, for people who haven't experienced yet, it's a very different way to connect with your dog. You know, yeah. there really is a different sense of um, connection and bond. And it really builds your relationship because, you know, you guys are working together as a team to accomplish something, you know, you're connected yeah. physically, but also, um, you know, emotionally as you guys are navigating the trail together. And what's different, you know, I was involved in dog sports before, you know, where we, there's definitely a strong bond, you know, when you're training and competing, but it's different when you're on the field, kind of like directing the dog, you know, do this, go here, do that. And they're doing like all the hard work <laughs> versus when you're actually out there physically do the physical work with your dog. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. So you were already a human athlete before you got started. Was it your love for dogs and your love for uh, human fitness that got you into the canine fitness world as well? Yeah, I think it's um, just always been a passion of mine. I've always been very, very active. And, um, and then that definitely attracted me, you know, to the, to the canine fitness side of things, because it's, you know, you got the human fitness side and it's like, oh yeah, I can apply this to the dog. So the human fitness came first. I was like an aerobics instructor and, you know, certified in personal training and things like that. And then later on in life, when I was, you know, already, I, I have a PhD in education. I was a associate professor at a university and left that for my passion for dogs. And I didn't know that this kind of 
I mean, actually, when I went through college, the kind of sports medicine and, and canine sports and, and things like that, it, it really didn't exist. Um, and I always thought, you know, if I had to go back in time and if these opportunities for careers existed when I was younger, I might have gone into, you know, something like that in the, the medicine side and sports medicine at, with the dogs. But um, it really wasn't prevalent like it is now when I was going through my undergrad years. I think it's fantastic. It's so prevalent now. You know, people are doing more with their dogs now. There's so many different kinds of sports that people engage in. And it's so important just for our human athletes to be in shape and have a good fitness plan. It's the same thing for our dogs, especially in dog powered sports where they are half of that team. Um, so obviously, you know, we're entering the early seasons kind of for training. We're working on starting to amp up our exercise and fitness programs to kind of get ready for fall and winter season. Um, and depending on how active we've been over the summer and how active our dogs have been, that can change what our fitness plan looks like. So for those of us who are trying to get our dogs back into shape as we enter fall season, what are some things that people need to think about in yeah. terms of their dog and their canine fitness programs? Yeah, a couple of key things are um, consistency, because if you're not consistent, you may have a good month or a few good weeks where you're moving and progressing in your training. And then if you're getting inconsistent and taking time off, your dogs are getting deconditioned. So one of the biggest things, and it's a challenge, is to be consistent, you know, uh, on multiple times throughout the week to keep the dogs involved and, and active if you want to continually to progress you know, to the next level. And so um, I notice that with my own dog, I always tell people when I'm teaching in my programs, I look at, this is very general, but just to give you an idea, I look at if I'm doing focused training in a particular area, if I'm doing it once a week, that that's really not significant enough to see much change, you know? Um, you can even see some deconditioning happening. Uh, two days a week, I find that I could potentially maintain depending on the activity I'm doing. When I was um, building up distance with my own dog and I was doing other things and then focused on just doing canny cross, you know, long runs twice a week, we both just really weren't progressing. And I find that when I add a third day or more, that's where I really start to see progress in both of us. And so um, that's the thing I see with a lot of people is they're not consistent. And so you just can't make the progress. The other thing is um, building gradually. So people may take some time off and they just jump in too much too soon. And then the dog's body hasn't adapted to that and they're putting themselves in potential risk for injury. And so a lot of people rush and push them too soon or right, or they wait and then right before a competition, then they're like, they do all this crazy training, you know, they like try to cram months of training into, you know, three weeks and, um, and that's not good. And so uh, uh, this is a very general rule of thumb, but I was interviewing a veterinarian once where he had been building up fitness programs with military working dogs. And it was kind of a rule of a 10% rule. So it's kind of like when, when you are ready to increase the workload is to increase it gradually by about 10%. And then you're going to work at that level for a while before you increase it by another 10% and to change one variable at a time. So if I'm going to be running on the flat and then I'm going to add an incline and add hills, that is a variable I just changed. If I'm going to add hill and add distance, I've just tried, I've just added two variables at one time. So when you're overloading the system too soon, too quickly, you're setting your dog up for potential injury. So that's another area that I see that people do is they kind of do too much too soon. They don't give that dog kind of that gradual buildup over time. Um, and then I guess the third thing I would say are other things that you do on a daily basis that can directly impact your dog's performance, such as hydration is, is one thing. Um, also what they do for warming up or cooling down their dog, you know, just warming up the muscles, your dog's going to be more efficient if those muscles are warmed up. Um, and things like monitoring body temperature can have a huge impact on your, the dog's working performance. And then also things like, um, uh, uh, exercise recovery. So not just hydration, especially this is for, you know, our longer distance, our dogs that are doing more aerobic activity is what we do afterwards 
to help get them ready for the next bout of exercise or to quickly recover from exercise. So those are things that we do, you know, based on what, you know, when we're feeding and hydrating and exercise supplements and paying attention to body temperature that can make a really big difference on how your dog is performing. So I would say people, a lot of people don't really pay much attention or aren't knowledgeable about those types of things that they sh should be doing. So let's quickly talk about that a little bit more. When we're talking about keeping our dogs hydrated, obviously when our dogs are in an intense exercise program, they're going to lose hydration a bit quicker. They also need additional fluids in order to flush out that lactic acid. So how do you manage that hydration pre-run, post-run, during that recovery period? What does that look like for you? Yeah, what I'll do is if I know that I have something big coming up or I'm, you know, training multiple days, it's going to be in a challenging environment is I will make sure that I just do a lot of, you know, free access to water or even encouraging my dog to drink more water. And I actually have a dog where this is really important because he had emergency surgery. His body produces cysteine stones and, um, and when it, and his body is just doesn't process the amino acids, the protein properly. So I have to give him lots of water to kind of flush through his system. And so for him to make sure he gets even excess, you know, more water is I'll kind of mix some of that water with his food, make sure that every single meal he's getting that extra water in. So I know some people that just getting their dogs to drink is really challenging. So sometimes we do have to kind of beat the water or get something in there to make it so it's more appealing to them. And um, I have my older dog, I notice when I get at the end of our, well, he's, he's 12 now, so we don't run. It's more like hiking. <laughs> um, but when we come to the end, he, I don't know if he gets excited when we get to the parking lot or what, but he won't drink water like at the end by the car. But I find that if I stop him, you know, a quarter mile before we get to the car, then he'll drink his water. And so what I'll do is make sure that they're well hydrated beforehand. And then I always take water with me and and, you know, I have an older dog, so they also don't handle the, the heat and the humidity as well. But, you know, I will even stop with my older dog, depending on the, on the temperature, I'll carry water with me and we may stop when we're training, we may be a mile in or less and I'll stop for him, my older dog and, you know, hydrate. Now, if I'm racing, of course, I'm not necessarily if you're doing a sprint or something, but if I'm just training as I make sure I carry that water with me, I always have it on me. Um, and, uh, if it looks like they're working a little hard, they're panting a little excess, I'll, you know, let them get their break for their water. And I don't withhold water. If they're thirsty, I let them drink water, but I won't let them gulp a whole bucket at once. So I will control that they don't drink a whole bunch all at once, but I will just periodically let them have water and then stop again, let them have some water. And even in, this is interesting in, um, French ring and competition, um, uh, uh, an advanced level dog, you actually can be on the field competing for 45 minutes straight or more. Wow. Yeah. And it can be really intense and they actually will let you in the middle, in the middle of exercises, when you're between exercises on the field, they will let you stop your dog and go give your dog water. That's and I, great. I think that's wonderful. You can say, Hey, I need to take a break. My dog needs water. And they'll let you go and give your dog water. Um, so I will give them water during exercise throughout, if I think they need it, um, you know, if they drink a little and then afterwards I encourage them again to drink. And another thing that's really important that people don't realize is they'll think, okay, I hydrated them after exercise, they go home, you're done for the day or the weekend and you're good to go. But the effects of dehydration and the effects of the heat can appear and the effects of it can be, you know, two, three days later. And I had a dog that was um, slightly dehydrated. He was fine over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I didn't notice the effects of it until Monday. So I tell people when they're working their dog hard is watch your dog like a hawk um, the, the next few days afterwards, because even though they may have done fine the day of training, you may see the effects of that a couple days later on the humidity, you know, the heat, the dehydration. And my dog with just a slight bit of dehydration, it took about a week before he was kind of back to 100%. And I don't think people quite realize how much that can really affect the dog. And it's not just the 24 hours, you know, right after you go home, but it could be days after that you need to continue to hydrate that dog and watch your dog closely. Yeah, I think that's 
that's really interesting. You know, living here in Atlanta, Georgia, obviously we are not strangers to heat and yeah. humidity. And so our, our season is quite a bit shorter. You know, we don't run the dogs in the summer here because um, it's just too hot. And so that hydration is really key and watching how hard your dog is working because dogs work significantly harder in harness out in front pulling us versus just free run and free play in the backyard, you know, and along with that harder work comes those risks of dehydration. Yeah. Yeah. And also people don't realize like your dog can get dehydrated and have, and also can have heat stroke in cold weather. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. people don't realize that. And uh, if your dog's not acclimated to it, um, you know, cold weather, they can still have heat stroke. And a lot of people just, they don't think about this. They don't think yeah. about it. Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned that I want to kind of jump back to, you talked about, um, you know, consistency with our program, of course, with consistency, we also need uh, off days so the dog can rest and uh, relax, recover. So how do we balance? Because a lot of the races that we have are often two-day events, at least when we're talking about our sanctioned races, which is significant work two days in a row. And oftentimes when we're looking at training plans, we account for those rest days. So how do you balance both that consistency, getting the dogs comfortable and used to running on muscles that have been worked the day before and those off days? You know, one of the things that I like to do is um, think about training where training mimics what you do in competition. And, um, and in French shrink, we would actually training was, was always harder than competition so that when we are competing, it's actually easier for them. So if I'm going to be competing and my dog has to be, you know, say racing two days back to back, I need to make sure that I do some training for that so that their bodies are used to that. So the first time they're doing and being asked to do that is not just on a weekend that they're racing. And so I would schedule my training throughout the week to make sure that there are opportunities to kind of mimic the type of things that we're doing on the training. Then the other thing that I like to do is um, anytime that I'm you know, having a bout of training, whether it's one day or two days or a weekend, whatever it is, when my dog is really working hard or working its hardest is um, the next day is have uh, an active recovery day. So I'm a believer in, because I feel it as a, you know, as a human athlete, you know, if yep. The other day I was, um, I hadn't been running hills in a while and I was running hills and I was so sore the next day, but I was like, you know, if I sit here in the house, I'm going to be sore longer than if I just go out for a walk or do a real easy jog to loosen up my muscles. So for me, uh, a rest day for the dog is a recovery, an active recovery day. So, you know, I want them to still be moving around, um, you know, and, and just in, engaging and using the body, loosening up the muscles. That would be a great day to also do some massage. Um, for dogs like, uh, real high drive dogs, like with my Malinois, sometimes you need to watch those dogs to control the environment so that something doesn't kick in their drive because they will go, go, go and go overload. So for those dogs, it, it might be an active recovery day, but I do have to kind of keep my eye out that there isn't something in the environment that is going to trigger them to go in that high drive mode. Um, so I will... I would say I would balance depending on the workload. I might make sure I have at least one day, if not two days a week, depending on what, how hard I'm working my dog for an active recovery day. Um, so like I said, my favorite is to do it after the hardest bit of training. And usually what I like to do either the night, that night of when the training is over or within 24 hours, I also like to do a whole full body massage because I use it to, you know, help exercise recovery, loosen the muscles, but I also use it as a way to double check and assess my dog just to make sure there's no signs of soreness, pain, lumps, bumps, or things. And I've caught stuff, you know, just mild things that I caught from that massage that I said, Ooh, I'm going to give my dog an, another extra day or two of rest. And then I would go back and massage and he was fine. Whereas if I had not a massaged him, I might've said, Oh, 24 hours, 40 hour rest, let's go back to work. And he actually wasn't ready to go back. So I do like to combine. Um, and I actually was certified in massage before I studied the fitness. Um, so I think that that's a perfect combination is combining the massage with the fitness. So that is a part of the recovery, especially for when they're working really hard, a part of that recovery process. Yeah, I think that's so important to have your hands on the dogs every day too. You yeah. know, coming from a veterinary tech uh, background myself, you know, 
getting your hands on the dogs. I check feet every time before and after runs. Um, I also do massage on them and you can pick up heat if they've injured themselves. Yeah. You can pick up if they're a little more uncomfortable with you touching a certain, a certain area in their body. Yep. And that's really important. Like you said, to decide, Hey, we might need an extra day off just to make sure that we don't stress something that's there. And oftentimes it's nothing, nothing major. It's just yep. giving them a little extra time for that recovery. Yeah. And if you're working like in uh, French ring is very, very physically demanding. And there were a couple of times where after training over the weekend, I noticed a little, just a little achiness in, in my one dog. And so I just gave him a few days, you know, a few extra days of, of rest. And I know that if, if he had gone back and just pushed himself that hard, you know, I'm, 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 I'm getting injury. And the only way I caught it, he didn't show any other signs anywhere, but it was in the massage that I was able to pick up on it. Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned that kind of sparked a light in me when you were talking about kind of splitting or adding one element in at a time, we do that a lot in our general training plans as well, where mm -hmm. we focus on changing just one component and building that up to not overwhelm the dog, to make sure the dog can be successful. So when you're doing that, and again, going from your example of uh, a flat run to adding hills versus a flat run and adding more mileage, how do you... How long do you keep it at a certain level and what signs are you looking for to say, yes, my dog is ready then for another layer? Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm adding, um, let's say if I'm adding hills, if I'm doing candy cross and I've not done hills. So, um, what I like to do is I'll do short little kind of almost like interval training where I'll do a short burst where we'll just say, okay, we're going to maybe go a little bit faster up the hill and then we're going to take it easy and go slower. There may even be a walk break. And what I'll do is I'll kind of break it up into in the intensity is I'll add smaller bouts, higher intensity, and then bring that intensity back. So the intensity level could be increased by, you know, the degree of the hill, the speed that we're going and um and then what i will do is over a period of weeks is those bouts of higher intensity they gradually get longer and longer is what would happen and um how to determine how long to to, to push them you know it, it's really it's really individual on the dog and the intensity level that you're going because you can't really say well i'm gonna you know go faster or harder or do a hill for a quarter mile versus an eight, you know, eighth of a mile. It's going to depend on the incline. It's going to depend on my dog's body, you know, condition, uh, fitness level, humidity, temperature, all of that's going to affect it. So the biggest thing that I do is I'm just really in tune to how my dog responds to exercise. I know like I guess what you can think of is like a perceived exertion in humans. We have a scale like a one to 10 on perceived exertion. When you think about a 10 is like maximum, you're completely going at your max. You can't go anymore. You're pushing the limit. And I can kind of look at my dog and say, okay, he's at his peak. You know, he's working his hardest, he, you know, he's, I can't really push him much more. And I know what those physical signs are for my dog. And I know what he is doing when it's real easy for him. And I know what's happening when I'm, a nice moderate workout kind of intensity level. And knowing your dog and knowing what those signs are, it can vary, the signs can vary by dogs because my one dog, when he's getting right at his max, like I need to stop, is the inside of his ears will get bright, 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 bright red. My other dog, his ears don't do that. And so I can't monitor for him, it's how his breathing changes. My one dog, when I'm pushing the max and I know I need to cut back is his breathing changes. Um, the shape of his tongue, you know, it's very, very scooped. You can tell, um, just his demeanor, my younger dog, like that expression in, in the, the tongue and the way he's panting, like I never see that in him. If I pushed him to that degree, he probably would be like going into heat stroke. And so there are some unique things that are different between the two dogs, as far as the signs they show with the way they're panting, um, also their attention level, <laughs> and also, uh, like I said, the signs of how hard they're working on um, body temperature. Um, but one thing I did notice with my, my younger dog is his motivation and drive when he was not as fit, that his motivation and drive during the run, I could see his interest was kind of dropping. 
And when we first started canny cross, like, and he wasn't well conditioned, like he would actually turn around and look behind, like, Hey mom, I'm ready to go home. <laughs> and I noticed that as his conditioning got better and better and better, and the more conditioned he was, his drive level, attention level, and desire for doing the running increased. So that was one thing for him. And I never noticed that with my other dog because his drive, I, I, he's just got high drive and everything. And my other dog has high drive, but it's kind of only for certain things. Yeah. <laughs> so that was one thing I could tell by his, his demeanor and his, his personality. I would know, um, when I'm kind of pushing too far, but that wasn't unique to him as I could tell that his, his attitude, he just wasn't as into it and partly related to fitness. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. I was actually just about to bring that up because I think for, you know, and your dogs are both high drive in general, but like you mentioned, high drive for certain things. A lot of our non-purpose bred dogs that are engaged in canicross and bike drawing, um, people will express a concern for the amount of drive the dog has in harness as they're trying to increase that mileage or improve their speed. The dog becomes less excited. There yeah. becomes slack in the line. Um, and maybe we start to see some other behaviors, the dog wanting to go off trail, to go sniff, to go mark on the trail. And those can all be signs that the dog's fitness level just isn't where it needs to be to do what we're asking them to do. Yeah. Exactly. And there's also, I would say I'm um, not as frequent, but also signs of that could be overtraining when you're mm -hmm. overtraining your dog. And then also another, especially if you've got, um, some dogs I would say that are just highly intelligent and just need a lot of just kind of variety for the mental stimulus is kind of doing the same. Like I can tell the other day we had a trail here in Acadia national park, they were doing work on the trail and it had been closed for months. And they opened it the other day and I was like, yay, we can go on this other trail. And I could totally see a difference in my dog on the trail we do all the time versus going on a new trail. Mm -hmm. And so even that is adding some variation to the training, um, where you train, um, alternating, changing up the speed, changing up the distance, those types of things can also have an impact on the, the interest and in the drive level of the dog too. Absolutely. So when we're talking about our dog powered sports, we generally will have people that are focused either in more of the sprint classes, or we have people that are more interested in more of the long distance, you know, 10 K half marathon, marathon, um, even ultras with their dogs. And so obviously our training plan is going to look pretty different depending on which side of that spectrum our listeners uh, align with. And in order to build those fitness plans, we certainly have to talk about building speed for our sprint classes. And then we talk about building stamina or endurance for our more long distance. Can, can you kind of give us a definition of those three terms? Because they are very different. And then we'll kind of dive into those a little bit more. Yeah. So I actually jotted down because I knew you're going to ask me about this and I wanted to give you like kind of what exactly I say to my students, because <laughs> I get this a lot. And um, a, a lot of places don't differentiate between the two. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about and in the programs where I teach my students in canine fitness, when we talk about endurance, we talk about the maximum amount of time a group of muscles can perform a certain action. So the key here is is time. So endurance is like you know, can your dog go for 30 minutes? Can your dog go, go for 10 minutes, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. So you're looking at that ongoing, that, that maximum time. When we look at stamina, we're looking at the amount of time a given group of muscles can perform at or near maximum capacity. So that's where I think of sprint, you know, the sprinter where you're working as hard as possible, really pushing the body and how long can you really keep up at that high intensity? And so, um, so those are kind of, like I said, a lot of people don't differentiate between the, the two terms, but, um, I've kind of pulled this from some of the exercise science and, you know, my background in, in, in the human, um, sports science background. And that's where I pull the definitions from. Um, and when 
And this is interesting because um, in the mushing world, what a, what sprinting is in the mushing world, and when we look at like aerobic and anaerobic exercise, and we talk about sprinting in a lot of the dog sport worlds, you know, like agility and protection sports, um, people define it very differently. And um, so when I'm looking at, let's say if I'm looking at anaerobic exercise, short bursts of energy in a short period of time, think about lure coursing and dock diving and stuff like that. What I'll tell people when we're building fitness programs for those dogs is I like a balance of both anaerobic and aerobic sprinting and that longer distance cardio training. I think all dogs benefit from both, but the emphasis that you put on like how many days per week, how many days per week am I going to focus on the sprinting versus how many days per week am I going to be focusing on that longer endurance will vary depending on the sport that you do. So the dogs that are doing more of the sprinting, I might, you know, have more emphasis on that. And they may have one day a week where we're just really working on long distance, nice, steady state cardio. Um, and that will be balanced individually, kind of distributed across the workload over the week. But one thing that people have to be aware of is when they're doing the high intensity, building the stamina, working the dog, you know, to max and really putting that power in there, is that stressing the soft tissues, tendons and ligaments more than if you're just doing that nice, easy, steady state type cardio. So the, the importance there is when you're doing those sprinting days and really working on speed or hill work for um, power and building strength is you want to be aware that the dog is working the body harder and you the, the recovery time is going to be really, really important for those dogs um, so that you're not pushing them to the point of you know, potential injury. Um, but what I'll do is kind of balance it out, you know, kind of days per week, the dogs that are doing more of the sprint exercises, they'll get more of that kind of sprinting practice. And then, you know, they'll have a fewer, maybe one day, two days where they're doing that longer distance, nice steady state. And then, um, the dogs that are doing more of that longer distance, they might spend more time doing that, but I still like to throw in say a day of some interval training with some higher intensity in that sprinting because it's challenging and, and just kind of working that cardiovascular system differently. It's more efficient and kind of maximizing the outcome of, of what you're getting out of the training in a shorter period of time. And I think there's benefits to training both. It's just how you balance it is going to be different. And I think the, the, challenge that people do is especially when they're in some of the other dog sports like um you know the agility and the lure coursing the dog diving a lot of anaerobic exercise is almost all their training they do all of that in their training and then they kind of ignore the aerobic or people that are doing all that longer distance you know long distance type steady state aerobic cardio they do all of that and they're completely ignoring say the higher intensity training so i do believe that we need all dogs are going to benefit from both types of training. It's just the, the amount and the workload throughout the week is going to be balanced based on what your end goals are. Yeah, that makes total sense. Adding variety to the program, getting the benefits from both, but having the majority of your plan being focused on what your ultimate goal is, whether that's, you know, sprint or long distance. So when yeah. we're talking about our sprint work, I know you're a big fan of using intervals yes. to your interval training to build speed with the dog. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So a couple of things with, um, whenever we think about, um, say power, we're looking at velocity and we're also looking at strength. So we need power and strength and we also need speed. And what some people do when they're say we're working on speed is they just focus on run faster, 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 and they ignore the power component of the, the strength aspect of it. So if you're wanting to get, um, say that acceleration and you're wanting to get more, more power in those high intensity amounts of training, the workload that you're doing is it's not a matter of just going faster, but it's also building strength. And so what I like doing, I like the interval training because it adds the higher intensity in the cardio. So it's pushing cardiovascular, um, wise in the, in the dog, but then you want to balance that also not doing just cardio and not just doing the interval training, but also have some strength training built into that. And the two of those together is where you're going to maximize what you're getting out of that. And I would say that the equivalent of it is like when I, um, say I was training for a marathon and just doing running, 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 running. And then I started incorporating, um, leg 
you know, exercises for my legs and doing strength training for my legs, it actually made my running more efficient and it made my running easier because my muscles were stronger and working more effectively than when I was only doing the cardio and ignoring the strength training. So I would say people that are really wanted to emphasize the speed, um, they want to emphasize acceleration, um, things like that is it's not just a matter of just dog, but also thinking about um, building strength in there. And strength could be, you know, hill work, you know, adding hill work is adding strength. You can also do strength by doing exercises with the dog's own body weight. You know, um, there's also exercise equipment that you can do to build strength. There's also, you know, um, other types of, you know, resistance training, drag work, things like that. But that is an area that I see a lot of people do when they're trying to build up speed is they do a lot of work on just going faster, faster, faster without thinking about or knowing about the benefits of also focusing on the balanced fitness program where strength training is a, part of, a very important part of that. So when you're looking at the strength training specifically for our sprint, our speed classes, um, obviously we want to build up quads. We want to build up stabilizing muscles. We want to build up core. What type of activities, you know, besides hill work, are you generally recommending for them? So one of the things that I do like is doing exercises like using body weight exercises. And I will use things like some of the fitness equipment and things like that. And it's not, um, it's not mimicking the ex exact behavior they're doing when they're running and pulling. But what I like about doing those types of exercises is you can really target a specific body part and you can have a dog that is, you know, stronger on one side of the body versus the other. Um, I saw, I saw one dog one time it was at a police dog competition and like, he, you could actually see behind standing behind the dog, the, the, um, the hindquarters and one side was distinctly more muscular than the other. <laughs> right. And so that is something that I like about doing exercise equipment and using body weight, kind of like stuff you'll see in rehabilitation type programs right? is because I can target specifically, we're going to work the front right shoulder. We're going to work the front left shoulder. We're going to work the back, you know, the back hind quarter on the right side versus the left. And that is something that, um, that I think is, uh, valuable that if you don't pay close attention to some of those imbalances, if you just keep doing the same activities you're doing all the time in the training, and if the dog is already kind of favoring more the right versus the left, just because you're exercising more doesn't mean it's going to balance off that left side, <laughs> right? right? You're going to just keep favoring that the strong side is going to keep getting stronger and that weaker side is going to be getting weaker. So, um, so that is something that I do like to incorporate doing some of those kind of isolated exercises, focusing strength, training, core, shoulders, hindquarters on particular body parts, but you also have to have sports specific training, um, for strength training, because, you know, not all your races are going to be on the perfect surface, <laughs> you know, the perfect terrain and completely flat. So you do also want to mimic and think about how you can replicate some strength training in an environment that is sports specific for what you would encounter in the sport itself. So I think it's kind of a, a combination of the two. So let's switch gears a bit. Let's talk a little bit more about building our endurance for more of our longer distance. I know you already mentioned that we do want to have a balance and we do still want to build, um, kind of focus on some of the faster or higher intensity workouts, even when we are building endurance. Uh, what, what other changes are we going to see in those programs versus our sprint? For just a straight endurance, building up the distance? Yes. Well, you'll, you'll definitely be looking at the amount of, you know, the amount of time that, that they're working, um, the overall workload, because they're going to be covering more distance. Also thinking about the nutritional needs. And now I'm not a, an expert on nutrition. We have Dr. Kepler who comes in and teaches a veterinarian who teaches for us, but the, the body uses energy differently, you know, whenever it's using, um, say, in anaerobic sprinting versus longer distance. So some of the things is also looking at the nutritional needs because that dog that is going for that longer distance is going to have different nutritional needs for the shorter sprinting dogs. Um, and 
I would say, I mean, the, the biggest difference would be, I would say the amount of time in the training, the distances that you're going and the recovery time is going to look different because some of those races and some of the distances that those dogs are doing is a lot of back to back. And what I see a lot of people who are not familiar with the mushing world and canine fitness, they'll be like, oh no, you can't do that with your dog or you can't do that back-to-back -back days or you're pushing your dog too hard. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> when you condition a dog properly and their body, their body is amazing in adapting to exercise. And when you condition them properly, a dog, as you know, can go out and do miles and miles and miles day after day after day when they're conditioned properly. So I do find that some people in the fitness world, canine fitness world, who don't have knowledge of, you know, the, I think sometimes these dogs are like the elite of athletes and they don't see what these dogs are capable of with the proper conditioning. They'll be like, you know, danger, danger, don't do that with your dog. <laughs> and so um, I would say like what I said before, iterating the building up gradually and building that up over time, but also thinking about if you are doing multiple days back to back and you're building that long-term distance is you may have it balanced out with the recovery time. It may, instead of being a day off or two days off, you may also take bigger advantages of the seasonal type time off. I know some people, what they'll do um, that are real, just really serious competitors um, traveling all over lots and lots of competing weekend after weekend is they'll take their, give their whole dog a whole month off, give their dog two months off. And it's not completely off. It's not that the dog's not exercising, but they give them a mental break and a physical break for different types of exercises. And so if you think about these distance dogs that are going maybe lots of time distance wise, multiple days, days back to back, and just that distance and overall workload just keeps adding up over time that the recovery time could look different for those dogs compared to the sprinters that aren't putting that much. Think about the overall wear and tear um, on the body and the distance that they're doing. Yeah. So obviously, you know, we want to keep a close eye on our dogs. We already talked about keeping our hands on our dogs. We talked about looking at some of the signs that we might be reaching, you know, maximum output from a training standpoint, we always want the dog to rehearse desired behaviors because anything they rehearse gets stronger, gets more normal, becomes more of their routine versus pushing the dog further than they're capable and getting, you know, a lack of tension in the line and them rehearsing that. So beyond just watching our dogs and observing our dogs, how do we kind of look at our fitness programs, look at our dog and decide when they are reaching that limit, how do we keep building up that endurance and, and balancing that drive and harness with them? So you're looking at kind of a combination of training, right? Training and also building up the fitness. That's a, it's a tough question because if you have that dog, <laughs> right, that you're kind of pushing the limit and they're not having the drive, um, and you have a, a, a team of dogs in there, are you looking at maybe multiple dogs? Sure, or, or individuals, yeah. If somebody is trying to build up, you know, a, a mono dog team. Yeah, if you're, you know, of course, if you're working with multiple dogs, you might look at, you know, the workload, which dogs are taking the brunt of the workload and thinking about the position of the dog um, in there and in, in the line. Um, I think what you what you need to get at is try to figure out if there's an issue, an underlying issue, what exactly is it, right, that is creating that issue? Because like we said before, sometimes we may think it's an issue of drive, but it's an issue of fit conditioning, right? Mm -hmm. um, some dogs, it could be, you can see, some dogs could be super sensitive to you know, a, a correction, it could be a verbal correction, right? And then, and then they're just like, I'm not into working anymore. And I think there's, you know, I, I think what people are going to have to do is try to get at what is the issue that's arisen and trying to figure out what is it that's actually behind that issue. 
because like I said, you can see it and think, well, okay, this dog just doesn't have the drive, but there's so many different things that could be affecting what you're seeing in the dog. It could be personality. It could be, you know, um, it could be health issues. It could be fitness level. It could be, it could even be relationship level to the dog that's next to it, right. <laughs> right. In, in the harness. And so I think that's, um, it's kind of tough to, to say, you know, here's an answer. I would, I would, I like to come at stuff as kind of, uh, kind of like a detective type, you know, frame of mind. And I do this when I talk with people about thinking of your dog, just like my dog, my pet versus thinking of your dog as an athlete. When you think about your dog of a, as an athlete, you structure your programs, you have a, a purpose for what you're doing, you know why you're doing it. When you're increasing distance, there's a structure and a thought and a science behind it. And then when the dog doesn't give us the results that we expect, what I see a lot of people do, like in some of the other sports that I'll see is, you know, the dog's not jumping well the dogs all of a sudden not, not paying attention and they blame it on the dog. Well, he's distracted or he's not paying attention or, but actually there could be an underlying issue of, you know, the dog's hurt. <laughs> There's a physical reason. And so I always like to try to approach it as if you're not getting the results that you're expecting is trying not to jump to conclusions or assuming it's training or assuming that, you know, blaming the dog is my first thing is to say, is there something physical going on? Is there something health-wise going on? Is there something could be fitness related and kind of rule those things out first and then kind of problem solve and through a process of elimination. But I, I do see a lot of people that jump really quickly to blaming the dog and they'll jump really quickly into just assuming um, a lot of times they'll assume it's a training issue when it's actually a physical issue. Yeah, um, I think I, and I think that's so important to kind of put that uh, detective hat on, so to speak, and really look at it at, look at the dog as a whole, you yeah. know, sure. It could be a training problem, but it also could be something medically. It could be an acute injury, could be something small. That's going to turn into an injury could be fitness level. And I think it's always important to not make assumptions and to look at that dog and, and try to figure out ruling things out one by one. And I think that that medical should always come first. I think yeah. that fitness, you know, and conditioning comes second. And then if those have been cleared, you know, then we move on to it from a training standpoint. And I think, I think too, when a lot of people are working on building their dog's fitness level up and they see that lack of drive from their dog, they can become frustrated. And then yeah. we can further decrease that dog's drive depending on how oh, we definitely. respond to it. You know, if we're getting frustrated at them when they're really giving it their all, they just don't have any more to give, you yeah. know? So I think looking at the team, us. even then as a whole, yeah, yeah looking at looking us, at us like what we're causing it definitely. And, and I also don't believe in, um, some dogs just aren't cut out for different things. And I don't, when my Doberman, when I was doing search and rescue and we started having issues with drive, right. And I would get frustrated. She would get frustrated and like, we didn't enjoy it anymore. And so I made the decision, you know, she didn't have that high, high drive working drive. We would try to work through it. She would, I would get frustrated. She would get, and I thought it's not worth it. I stopped doing it with her and I found something, you know, that's more enjoyable that I'm not frustrated and she's not frustrated. And, you know, some dogs, um, you know, some dogs are going to gravitate to different types of activities. They're going to enjoy different types of activities and more than others. And, um, if I truly believe my dog just isn't enjoying something and I've tried different things, you know, I don't believe, you know, in enforcing is if that's not for the dog. When I got my one Malinois, I was like, do I do search and rescue or do I do the protection sport? And I dabbled in both. And I was like, I'm going to do the one that he seems to excel in. And that was the final decision was I was leaning one way, but I saw, you know, what is it that my dog is just, he lives for. And that's what I went in the direction for because, and he was bred for it. So it was kind of obvious that that was the direction he went with the protection stuff. But, um, but uh, you know, there, definitely there are things that we're creating the problem. A lot of times um, there are, it could be health and other things, but I do think sometimes people, you know, get, and I'm, you know, I'm guilty. You get so goal oriented and you have a vision of what you want. And, um, but is it, are we 
are we in it and pushing it for ourselves or are we in it and pushing it, you know, thinking about the dogs? Right. Um, and I, I yeah. think that kind of comes into play too, as we're looking at the dog that we have in front of us today versus the dog we might have had five years ago, yeah. you know, because our fitness plans are going to change quite a bit as our dogs get older. And we yeah. always need to make sure that we're doing what's right for them. And that might mean a decrease in mileage. Yeah. You know, we certainly still want to have those uh, strength days in there to keep those muscles nice and strong to help support them orthopedically, but they might not have quite as much drive and quite as much in them distance wise as they start to age. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, my 12 year old, when he got to the point where we couldn't do candy cross anymore, he's got some neurological issues and mobility issues. And, um, you know, it, a lot harder on me than him to not be able to do it anymore with him. And, you know, when I had to retire him from French ring, cause he, you know, he had some issues, um, some deterioration, some discs, some discs in his spine and, and he had some pain and, you know, it's going to deteriorate as he gets older and older, he's not going to get better. So I instantly, I retired him when I saw that he had some pain from some issues from the discs in his neck. And, um, and it was definitely like it, I swear I like went into a depression. I mean, it's a whole lifestyle and then you have to give it up. And like, it was so hard on me psychologically. It was my social, you know, every weekend and the social aspect and my friends and competing and training. And it, it was so much harder for me um, to say, no, in his best interest, um, we can't do this sport anymore. Um, and I know for many times it's harder on the humans to, you know, what's best for the dog, but we came into it with all this vision and the stream and all these expectations. And then some, sometimes we, things are shook up and we're like, yeah, it's not going to be what we thought it was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> and that could be hard. That could be very hard. It is hard, you know, and especially for a sport like canacross or bike during our dog powered sports, it's like we talked about kind of at the beginning of this, of this chat, it's a different kind of connection. And so to not be able to do that thing anymore or to change that thing. And that's where we kind of have to think about our expectations as well. You know, we've got a, a girl in our house right now who's probably, you know, getting towards the end of her career. She's getting older and she still wants to do it. And she still gets really excited at the trailhead, but we're having to change how far we're going, her recovery looks a little different, or her yeah. strength program looks a little different. So for our, our folks who have senior dogs, what are some signs that they should be looking for as their dog ages to kind of determine when they should start taking a step back, even if the dog doesn't want to? Yeah. I mean, I mean, definitely demeanor, but some of these dogs are like, I want to go, I want to go. But with like with my dog, some of the some of the things that I started noticing is, um, I would see him sore. Like he would be sore. He would be, um, if he pushed himself a little bit too hard, he would be limping the next day. Um, achy, his mobility, you know, as he's gotten older, uh, his mobility would be off. And, um, and I would see physical signs like that. Um, and especially if it's something where he's uncomfortable, you know, um, sore pain, like, I don't want that for him. Um, so those were some like immediate signs. Like I started cutting back on his distance when we go just for our hikes, we're not running anymore. But I noticed that when I was going, you know, two miles, as he started getting older and having more issues, um, he was exerting himself more. Um, he, it was, he was straining himself more, just kind of breathing wise. He was tiring, fatiguing and, and uh, being affected by the heat faster. I was having to stop more frequently for the, you know, give him water breaks. Um, and he would start tripping, coming back. I noticed if he was pushing himself, he would be tripping and just not as steady on his feet. And so I was like, we can't, we can't do too much anymore. We, we, we got to cut it back. And then I noticed when I cut back to say a mile and a half, those little symptoms that I would be seeing, they stopped. So then I say, okay, we're good at a mile and a half. Um, but then I noticed when the heat and humidity picked up that I would start seeing those signs at three quarters of a mile rather than, or a mile. And I was like, you know what? We were going to go a mile and a half today. I'm going to turn back right now. So I'll see things. And um, like I said, the, the mobility, um, body awareness, balance, um, definitely in his exertion and his, um, just overall, you know, demeanor and the breathing and, you know, how he's acting, if he's got a lot of energy coming back to the car, 
um, those are those are all signs um, as he's gotten older that would say, you know what, we need to cut back on our distance. And also when we went from running to now we're walking and, you know, the speed that I work on. And then other things that I had to change with him is the terrain. So um, when we were on terrain that was not very flat and then, you know, he was more unsteady on his feet, then it's like, okay, we can't go off the trail now. We need to be on a trail that's just an easier trail, you know, a flatter surface. Um, and I noticed that um, just through his overall response in the midst of doing the activity. And then I definitely noticed his recovery time um, when I was pushing him a little bit too much and say, it's time to cut back as I would notice it in the recovery, slower to recover, um, more fatigued afterwards, not bouncing back, stiffness, soreness, things like that. And now those are immediate signs, especially if it's more than just one episode, right? And it's like, all right, it's, we need to cut back. And then as soon as you start cutting back, if you see those signs go away, then that's a, there's that detective hat again, right? <laughs> yep. Well, he did this at two miles, but he didn't do it at a mile and a half. And let's do that for another week or two or three. And that gives you that feedback that, no, I made the right decision because he's handling it better at the shorter distance. Yeah. And I think that's one of the nice things actually about both dog training and engaging in these sports with our dogs in terms of them being a canine athlete is that we have to be observant, you know, and we're so connected with them emotionally. We care about them so much that it's very easy for us to be observant, you know, and we've really got to keep an eye on all of those little changes in their body language, all of their stress signals, all of those uh, behaviors that we'll see afterwards with the stiffness. And that's going to give us a lot of information in terms yeah. of what we are doing and how it's impacting them. And then we just need to take that information and, and move forward with it, you know, in a yeah. smart way. And I'll give you one more example. Cause I think this is where a lot of people might kind of make the wrong decision is when I would go, let's say I could do out and back on a trail is when I go out, like, he's just like, go, 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 go. And if I let him go, like how he wants to go, then we get to the turnaround. I'm like, whoa, we went too far because he's is starting to hit him. So what I'll be, I'll, I'll say, listen, I know you want to go, <laughs> but I know you can't handle this distance. You start really excited, but you can't maintain this. So I'll be like, okay, well, I'm going to hold him back and not let him go so fast going out. And then I'll say on the last quarter mile or half mile, if you still have that energy, then I'll let you run. But if right. I, if I left it up to him, he would have overexerted himself and he would have pushed himself too hard going into the first half mile. And when we got to the turnaround point, he would really be struggling on the way back. And so, but, and I learned, you know, through experience that he would do this. And so I knew that even though he was like, let's go, let's go. I'm like, nope, if you're going to last for the two miles, I'm not going to let you go at that speed right now. I'm going to hold you back, but you are more than welcome at the end. If you still have that energy, then I'll let you go. <laughs> yeah. I love um, that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we need, we, they don't know, and we need to kind of protect them, especially for the higher, those higher drive, you know, excitable dogs that are like, let's go, let's go. They don't know that you're going to turn around after a mile, two miles or three miles, and then they're going to struggle getting back. And so I have to control him and then say, no, that's fine. You, you have that energy. I know when I can release it, but not at the beginning because you're not going to make it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know if this is true for all dogs, but one thing that I have found specifically for my crew as they age is that those active recovery days are more important for them. Yeah. You know, they need to stay moving. And if I keep them moving and do after a big exercise day, you know, let's say we run in the morning, later early afternoon and early evening, and then early morning the next day, we're going for really short walks. Yeah. And that tends to keep the body moving a little bit more versus if they're tired, they come home, they curl up in a ball and they stay in a ball, that yeah. body stiffens up and they tend to have a lot more uh, trouble. And they, you know, when they start aging, it starts deteriorating. It can go quite quickly. And if, the way I look at it is, you know, a lot of times when people retire a dog, they put all that like energy in the younger dogs and then the retired dog, they just go, go and have a happy, you know, hang out on the couch while I go out and train today. And the way I look at it is, especially for the larger dogs, um, is a lot of times when we have to put them down is in mobility, when they lose mobility. And so if I have 
let's say if um, we have bad weather coming, you know, tonight and tomorrow, and, and I, I have a limited amount of time to train and I have to pick which dog I'm going to take out and I have limited time, my senior dog always gets priority because if he can't maintain that strength and mobility and he starts declining, that's going to be it. Be I, you know, he's almost 80 pounds. I can't carry him around all, you know? And so that is another thing I think some people do is it's like, Oh, you know, they're going to enjoy the retirement. They're going to take it easy. But I think strength training and mobility and body awareness is more important for those older dogs, because once you start losing that, it can go really quickly. And then you lose that mobility. That could be the thing. And so like I said, when I'm, when I'm short on time and I have limited time to take a dog, you know, if I take one dog out, my older dog gets the priority over my younger one because, um, you know, he doesn't have a lot of muscle mass left and, you know, he doesn't have, you know, have a, you know, a lot more time left. And so I need to keep him on top of his fitness if I want to keep him with me as long as possible. Yeah, that's, that's spot on, you know, as they age, that muscle atrophy comes more into play just naturally as they get older and, and periods of inactivity will create more muscle atrophy. So keeping them up and moving, keeping those strength days in there to keep all of those muscles nice and strong as long as possible is key for those older dogs. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you mentioned that because I haven't thought about the possible topics. You sent me some topics, but yeah, the senior dogs and the aging, I'm, like I said, I've got that 12 year old and another older dog. So that's kind of, I'm living that and I'm passionate about keeping the quality of their life as high as we can. Absolutely. Keep them with us as, as long as we can for as long as they're doing well. Exactly. Yeah. So for our listeners that are working on building their fitness plans, getting ready for the next racing season ahead of them, do you have any kind of last minute tips or anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to mention? Oh, we covered a lot today. We did. It was was a jam packed episode. Um, You know, I, I kind of alluded to this, but I didn't explicitly talk about it is a balanced fitness program. So to me, this is something I preach all the time, you know, balanced fitness program, you know, flexibility, cardio, body awareness, strength, aerobic, anaerobic is is so important that we, when we do a particular sport, we automatically make our programs out of balance because we tend to focus on training for whatever the sport is. So we do a lot of sprinting or we do a lot of cardio, but we ignore the stretching. And so we need to always be thinking about what are we pushing and where are we working our dogs hard and also what areas are being ignored or we're not putting enough attention to because you know it's all interconnected <laughs> and again I'll, my background is a runner if i if all i do is run 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 i'm going to have an imbalance of muscle between my quadriceps and my hamstrings i'm going to start feeling tightness in my lower back i'm going to start have lower back pain because i'm not doing stretching i'm not focusing on flexibility Um, I'm not balancing out my strength training, you know, in the gym because my running is emphasizing muscles in one way only. And I just keep working those muscles in that way because all I do is run. So it's the same with the dogs. If we don't have a balanced fitness program, well, we're always striving to get a balanced fitness program. It's never perfect. But if we don't stay aware of where some of those imbalances are and try to be on top of it is those imbalances are creating weaknesses and those weaknesses are potential prime areas for injury. If your dog slips in the snow and the ice, if your dog, you know, works, you know, hard or whatever, those are the areas that sets them up for potential injury is where those weaknesses are and imbalances in our training programs create weaknesses. So I just want to emphasize the need for people to be aware that it's important for all of these components. And we tend to be knowledgeable and more in some than others. And we tend to focus more in some areas more than others. So being aware that the balance is important, recognizing where you're putting more of your time, recognizing where you're not putting much emphasis. And if it's an area you don't know a lot about, educate yourself so that you can start seeing how to make your programs more balanced. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And what a great note to end on building those balanced programs as we move into our training season so that our dogs can stay healthy and we can find success with them, uh, both on the trails with them. Erica, thank you so much for taking time and joining us today. I really appreciate it. You are such a wealth of knowledge. I think a lot of people will find a lot of benefit from this episode. So thank you for sharing. You're very welcome. Again, thank you so much for having me. 
So, until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.